Welcome to Journal Spotting. Wondering if you should get that x-ray on your pregnant lady who is suffering from hip pain doing Tai Chi associated with impatient hypertensive spikes which might also be related to your bad singing? No? Well your ears are still in the right place. This is the General Medicine Podcast that will bring you a monthly roundup of the top practice changing articles along with specialist interviews, guidelines and more. We scour the journals so you don't have to. We are the Journal Spotters. Welcome back to Journal Spotting. We are here to try and remind you that general medicine is so much more than just VTE prophylaxis and antibiotics. There's a whole world of exciting new studies and practice changing knowledge out there. So stop clerking the patient with a pubic growing fracture that orthopedics can't be bothered to admit under their care and plug into another journal roundup. The uh, more dedicated fans out there will notice we've decided to move away from introductions where Barney sings 90s pop songs. And that's both for your sanity and our legal costs. Mate, you've disappointed a whole load of listeners there. They're going to be like, oh, that's what, that's what they signed, I signed up for. Anyway, this is the place you want your ears to be if you would like to hear the latest and greatest in medical literature. If you want to learn about climate and our health, go to our awesome Climate Zone series. If you want to hear first-hand stories of the experience of doctors in Ukraine right now, listen to our War in Ukraine specials. But... If you want to get up to date whilst you sit back on your train commuting to work, whilst just considering if you might, just might get away with picking your nose in public without being seen, then this is the episode for you. And by the way, go on, live a little, just pick it. Barney once again reminding us that he um, has many small children at home. Uh, Tonight (laughs) we are dialing back the clock to December 2019 when Corona was just a week lager, everybody thought Vladimir Putin was an alright bloke, and the journal spotting pilot was recorded. Barney and I are joined by none other than the master of mockers, the saviour of sarcopenia, the Confucius of confusion screens, it's Dr. Alvin Trester. (laughs) <laughs> Welcome back, Alvin. It's been a while. Maybe a little quick update on what you've been up to. Oh my goodness, guys. What an introduction. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thank you. I am indeed Alvin Schrechter and uh, yeah, reminiscing back to uh, December 2019. Was it that long ago? Um, yeah, it has been a while since I've been back on. Uh, apparently I've missed Barney singing pop songs. When, when did yeah. that happen? You can listen um, back, mate. You can listen back plenty of time. Um, yeah, uh, I have certainly missed you guys and our listeners, of course, um, and all the all the strange humour that c- comes about. Alvin, what are you bringing to the table today? Are you covering anything exciting for us? Well, I think you guys are going to enjoy some of the articles I've got. So uh, I'll be going through ultrasound guided um, injections in uh, osteoarthritis. Uh, what happens if you stop aspirin in people that don't need it, um, and a couple of articles on exercise and health outcomes. Sounds good, sounds good. Um, I'll go next if that's all right. So as you all know, I'm Dr. Barney Hirons, and I've uh, recently been spending my research days recording people for 24 hours, then listening back and counting their coughs. It's uh, pretty expectorating stuff. Today, however, I will cover a useful BMJ review article on radiology and pregnancy, the possible use of music in medicine, it goes back to my singing, and novel approaches to cardioversion. Awesome. And I am Dr. Jonathan Hudson. Uh, I've gone down a bit of a hypertension rabbit hole. Uh, I'll be looking at whether you should be treating inpatient hypertension or not. And I will also be looking at uh, chronic hypertension in pregnant women and also what thresholds we should be starting treatment. 
Remember, listeners, rate us on Spotify and Apple. It really makes a difference and helps us get the uh, the big interviews on. Follow us on Twitter. Email us on, email us on journalspotting at gmail.com and get in contact if you want us to send you free mugs to put in your local doctor's mess. I mean, who wouldn't want that? Um, yeah, Alvin, I think you're going to go first. Uh, feel free to use either of the nicknames that I just gave you. Uh, what uh, what Jerry's pearls are you bringing to us this evening? Um, so I thought I'd actually go sort of, you know, increasingly Jerry's as the show goes on. So in fact, uh, the first article I'm going to go through, I think just had a, a mean age of a mere 62 years, which is which is very young for us Jerry it's, it's practically paediatric. <laughs> so I'm going to talk through clinical effectiveness of one ultrasound-guided intra-articular corticosteroid and local anaesthetic injection, in addition to advice and education for hip osteoarthritis, the HIT trial, which was published in the BMJ. The official title is actually even longer and more awkward than that. Um, so this was a, a triple-arm randomized control trial. The three arms were, number one, best current treatment, which was just uh, essentially advice and analgesia. Arm two was ultrasound-guided local anaesthetic with steroid injection. And arm three was ultrasound-guided local anaesthetic only without steroid injection. The primary outcome was self-reported hip pain based on a numerical rating scale of 0 to 10. The researchers found a greater reduction over six months in overall pain intensity in participants allocated to local anaesthetic with steroid group compared with best current treatment. Specifically, the reduction was actually seen up until two months, and this became no longer statistically significant at four or six months. The local anaesthetic with steroid group also enjoyed improvement in physical function and quality of life, which formed part of the secondary outcomes. When comparing local anaesthetic with steroid group to the local anaesthetic without steroid group, there was a significant reduction of pain at only two weeks, and this did not extend beyond that time point. Okay, so it seems quite promising there for local anaesthetic with steroid injections being uh, superior to um, standard care. Uh, were there any adverse events? I'm thinking sort of injecting steroids and anaesthetic into people's joints. Could that cause any harm? Yeah, good question. Uh, what they reported was about a third receiving the injections, uh, both um, the steroid and the non-steroid group, had non-serious adverse events, which were mostly just local skin changes. Notably, there was one participant who had a history of a bioprosthetic aortic valve that developed subacute bacterial and endocarditis and unfortunately died following uh, their steroid injection and it was actually concluded after their investigation that causation from the injection could not be ruled out. Um, Aside from that uh, there are also other limitations to this study. Uh, The outcome of pain was self-reported and subjective. There was no placebo in the best current treatment arm and interestingly the authors report Uh, that out of all the participants, 94% of them actually preferred to have been in the uh, injection treatment arm. And so they even go on to suggest that those uh, that were in the best current treatment group who did not receive an injection may have experienced resentful demoralisation 
<laughs> that, that's apparently a, a well-established thing in trials. Um, yeah, so ah. people that don't receive a certain treatment um, uh, can experience this phenomenon, and they suggest that perhaps that may have accentuated some differences in the outcome seen. The, the thing that stands out for me here is that you, this needs a sham. They need a sham procedure to actually tell a difference, right? Yeah, exactly. So that, that, I think that, that was one of the downfalls. Um, mm. But regardless, I think, you know, this still provides some good evidence for the use of local anaesthetic and steroid injections in HIPOA. Um, and I also liked how they had the analysis performed at different time points showing efficacy uh, up until including two months. So that might give, you know, some insight into when you should be deciding follow up or repeating injections. And, uh, you know, also, we all always hear about these long waiting lists for surgery, don't we, these days, including hip surgery. And so this might provide some, you know, temporary relief for a lot of these patients. I've, um, I've heard before that there is a possibility that you can get, if you inject into the hip, you get this kind of rapidly destructive hip disease if you're injecting um, steroids into a hip. Um, is that something that they saw in the trial or...? So no, there was no suggestion of anything like that. Looking into the adverse event sort of table, I think they described uh, just one case of avascular necrosis of the hip, but that was actually in the best treatment group rather than the injection group. So no, that there was no signal for anything like that. That's reassuring anyway, isn't it? And I think the, the article you were just, um, thinking about, um, John, was about this kind of um, case reviews and retrospective. So it wasn't, it wasn't 100% clear, but there's certainly a signal to harm. But um, that sounds like this, uh, this is um, reassuring. And do you think it's something which you'd, you, are you seeing these sort of patients, Alvin? Would you consider referring them for a, uh, a steroid injection based on what you've heard? Yeah, I think I think this is uh, giving some new uh option into you know treating osteoarthritis so beyond just analgesia um, in particularly those that are really suffering from pain I think I think I'll certainly be looking to uh, think about referring. Sounds good thanks very much Alvin that's great. I think I'll go next guys and I'm going to take us way way younger going to go looking at sort of pregnant ladies and this is a topic which I think should be useful for any medics listening really because it's something we all have to deal with. So this is a, a handy BMJ review, which is essentially a guide on radiology in pregnancy. I mean, listeners may well have seen a wide variation in hospital guidelines, if you're lucky, lucky enough to have some on this, and an even wider variation in what the, inverted commas, experts do and don't do. The paper covers loads, so I'll just cover the key areas and keep the X-rated jokes to a minimum. You're welcome, everybody. <laughs> That was, a, that was a perfectly sort of timed eye-rolling in both your videos there, guys. That's great. Okay, so first off, there is no risk, as far as we can see, in ultrasound scans or MRI scans. The only caveat with this is that we should try to avoid contrast for both of these. And no, John, your pregnant lady probably doesn't need that bubble echo right now. But on to ionising radiation, the thing we're most worried about. And of course, the biggest worry for most is cancer risk, so either to the fetus or to the mother. Now, in the mother, it's the breasts, which are currently undergoing glandular proliferation. And so that's the biggest concern is that they are especially sensitive to radioactive gamma rays. Um, and this may could theoretically turn into cancer at a later date. And I'll go through this. All right, a couple of questions for you guys, you um, maternal physicians, both of you. 
what is the general background risk of childhood cancer? One in 50, one in 500, one in 5,000, or one in 50,000? What do you think? So this is um, not related to imaging or anything like that? Just No, this is just the risk of any child getting cancer. Um, I'll have to go with one of the safe middle choices. One in 5,000, maybe. <laughs> Uh, I'm going to go one in 50,000, Barney. Oh, it's one in 500. So maybe, you know, not as uncommon as you might think. One in 500, okay? Now, right, next question. The radiation to a fetus from a transatlantic flight is equivalent to, and this is using modern low-dose technology, a chest X-ray, an abdo X-ray, a CT head, or a CT chest? I've heard this somewhere, and I want to say abdominal X-ray, something about... Yeah, the abdominal exposure. I don't know. <laughs> CT right. chest, I think. Yeah, a low-dose CT chest gives you the ah. same radiation as a transatlantic flight. Isn't that interesting? And you wouldn't think twice about transatlantic flight apart from if you're about to pop on the way. Um, and finally, which dose of ionising radiation has no cancer risk? Which dose? What, like a, yeah. what, what unit do you want this answer in? <laughs> Um, milli gamma molecules <laughs> rays. It's a trick question. There is there is no safe dose of ionizing radiation. Uh, they, any dose could potentially cause cancer, but obviously, you know, the lower the dose, the lower the risk. Right. So, let's look at mothers first. Okay, chest X rays are considered safe. Obviously, don't go crazy, don't do millions, but if there's an indication to get one, just get one and don't worry about it. Generally. The risk of radiation from most scans that we do is, you know, for the mother, appears to be the same as in the non-pregnant population, except, as I've described, the potential risk of breast cancer. And here, from what I can see, maybe that's just because I'm a respiratory doctor, the most common conundrum occurs with diagnosing a PE and what investigations you get. So, as far as radiation goes to the breast, CT scans are significantly worse than BQs, with somewhere between 10 and 60 times higher dose of gamma rays. Okay, Barney, time to translate a gamma ray into a unit of measure that we can understand. <laughs> what do you mean? Okay. Well, look, um, obviously, you're thinking the higher the gamma rays, the increased risk of cancer. But there was this 2018 study of thousands of BQ and CT scans, and they followed up patients for somewhere between 6 and 11 years. And over that time, they found no increased risk of breast cancer in either group. Hmm. This is, of course, excellent news, but the follow-up is probably a little bit short to rule out subsequent cancers, which can occur up to like 20-odd years down the line. Still, it is pretty reassuring. Other potential issues for the women involved um, is things like difficulty interpreting the scans. For instance, there are hemodynamic changes which make it very difficult to get good opacification mm. of the pulmonary arteries and CTPAs, meaning that around 12% of CT scans are non-diagnostic. Um, and this probably gets worse the further into pregnancy they are. But bear in mind, BQ scans have a very similar rate of 14% of non-diagnostic scans. And actually, the confidence intervals overlap for both of those. Then there is a risk of things like incidental omas on a CT, which then need further workup, etc. So what's your, <laughs> what do you do then, Barney? Well, look, there's is difficult balance, isn't it? And we'll have a think at the end, what, you know, what possible options. Okay. And different places will, you know, will have different options for, you know, different ideas about it. Uh, so you've covered uh, the maternal risks. What about the risk to the uh, fetus? Cool. Okay. So this one's got a quite a nice, instead of talking about gamma rays. Um, so a plain x-ray, and that's like 
you know, chest, head, arms, limbs, that sort of thing, has a, <laughs> it's pretty safe. That sort of thing. Right. Other bits. Yeah. <laughs> They're pretty safe and they've got less than a one million, one in a million chance of childhood cancer. Good okay? odds. Next up, a CT chest or a CTPA gives a risk of one in 100,000 to one in a million risk of childhood cancer. So actually, really small. Higher up on the radiation ladder is actually a VQ scan or an abdo or pelvic x-ray. And this increases to a risk of one in 10,000 to one in 100,000 risk of childhood cancer. So still small, Mm. but it's getting bigger. However, there is a key thing here. Remember that with VQ scans, they can sometimes do the perfusion part first. And if that's normal, they don't need to do the ventilation part of the study, which greatly reduces the amount of radiation used. Finally, a CT abdo pelvis has a risk of about 1 in 200 to 1 in 1,000 of childhood cancer. So remember that the background risk of childhood cancer is about 1 in 500. So performing a CT abdomen is probably going to double that risk roughly. And what about uh, abdominal shielding with uh, lead? Does that help? Good question. Yeah, look, and the quick answer is no. It might reassure the patient, but radiation to the fetus tends to get there from internal scatter rather than the external beams from the machine. Also, if the lead actually gets in the way of the field of view of the scan and it's got a a computer autocorrect on, it can actually automatically increase the dose of radiation given, which obviously is worse for the the patient and the fetus. Mm, Okay. And Barney, what, what about contrast? Can that be harmful to the fetus? Yeah, good. And this is the other thing we worry about, isn't it? So um, although we know contrast does pass through the placenta, there is no evidence of risk to the fetus from IV contrast apart from a theoretical risk of neonatal hypothyroidism. So the authors actually recommend a heel prick test to check this at birth if contrast is used during pregnancy. There's loads more information in the review with case examples, including trauma and CT heads and all these sorts of things. So I recommend a look over it. But what it real, really boils down to is risk and discussion with patients. Okay, so to summarise, ultrasound and MRIs are safe without contrast. Regarding radiation to the fetus, VQ is slightly worse with a childhood risk of cancer at worst 1 in 10,000. Yep, that's right. And bear in mind, remember, background rate of childhood cancer is about 1 in 500. Mm. And then regarding radiation to the breast, CC scans are a lot worse. But clinically, this may not make much of a difference in the relative short term. And IV contrast is safe, but recommend a heel prick test for hypothyroidism at birth. You've got it. Alvin, sounds like you've actually been listening. Fantastic. <laughs> um, so yeah, I think, look, the conclusion here is if a patient needs an investigation, get it. A MIS-PE or an internal bleed has much more of a risk to the fetus than the radiation. But... I probably wouldn't advise getting an abdo x-ray to see if your 40-week pregnant lady is constipated or not. Um, And then the choice between the VQ scan and CT scan, your hospital is going to have guidelines, but actually this is something you can talk to your patient about. And from my experience, most patients will be willing to take the slight increased risk to themselves rather than the even tiny risk, increased risk to their fetus. Yeah, that sounds good. I was just reflecting sometimes, I wonder if it slightly adjusts our clinical, having to make a, a decision a bit more based on clinical acumen rather than just the test. I, I feel like the threshold for CTPAs now in general medicine is pretty low 
Um, and I think maybe in pregnancy, people need to use their clinical uh, skills a little bit more and the history a bit more. But that's yeah. just of my experience of what I've seen. There are other good guidance from the Royal College of um obs and gynae and things um where they you know they set out like if they've actually got evidence if they think got symptoms of dbt do an ultrasound of the legs first things like that because mm. actually then they, you know that'll give you the answer yeah. so there are other guidance out there there's just thinking about the radiation barney did we both go to the same maternal medicine conference or is it just Perhaps. a coincidence <laughs> that we're uh, both covering pregnancy related uh studies i'm gonna stick in this domain, but I'm going to move us along to hypertension. I'm going to share with you the results of the chronic hypertension and pregnancy or CHAP trial. Uh, So this randomized controlled trial was published in the New England Journal uh, this month, and it wanted to know whether treating chronic hypertension, chronic mild hypertension in pregnancy was beneficial to mother and fetus, and if it was safe. Um, Chronic mild hypertension in pregnancy is actually quite a big problem. So an estimated 2% of pregnancies are affected by hypertension, so the women becoming hypertensive. Um, This is increasing uh, as we see increasing prevalence of obesity uh, and also as the maternal age gets a little bit higher. Um, The presence of hypertension increases the maternal risk of eclampsia, stroke, heart failure, placental abruption, and maternal death. And it increases the fetal risk of preterm birth, poor growth, and perinatal death. Gosh, that's a um, quite a long list of rubbish outcomes and things to avoid there, John. Yeah, uh, hopefully the take home from that is that chronic hypertension in pregnancy can uh, be bad. So up until fairly recently, it wasn't actually that clear if you should treat chronic mild hypertension in pregnant women. And so what I mean by that is actually a, a so blood pressure of less than 160 over 100, but greater than 140 over 90. So sitting in that sweet spot. Obviously, in um, adults who are not pregnant, um, you would treat someone if their blood pressure was above 150 or at least, you know, give lifestyle advice and then start them on treatment. So the conclusive answer from the CHAP trial in the New England Journal is that we should be treating it. Um, the trial was an open-label, multi-center, randomized control trial, and it was conducted in lots of sites across the USA. Uh, it randomized pregnant women at a gestational age, age of 23 weeks or less uh, who had mild chronic hypertension. And they were randomized to either receive antihypertensive medications or no treatment unless the BP ended up going above 160 or a diastolic above 105. And they managed to randomize 2,408 women and they showed that women who received antihypertensive treatment had a lower risk of preeclampsia with severe features, a lower risk of preterm birth, placental abruption, or fetal or neonatal death. And there was no difference in the prevalence of small for gestational age birth weights between the two groups, and the incidence of maternal complications was also the same. So this study, along with another randomized controlled trial, which you may have come across called the CHIPS trial, have uh, really established the standard of care for women with chronic mild hypertension should be aiming for a blood pressure target of less than 140 over 90. Uh, and that's now reflected in some nice guidelines and really should be the standard of care. That's interesting, John. For some reason, when you told me you were going to talk about this, I thought I thought it was going to be like, hey, don't worry about it. <laughs> the chaps and the chips, the chaps and the chips say it's fine. Just, you know, but actually, no, that's really quite clear, isn't it? That um, we've got clear guidance and clear evidence that there are better outcomes. So, yeah, definitely. And I guess it's um, maybe it's slower for this evidence to get to us because of the concerns about giving certain drugs in pregnancy. You know, it's been well established that we'll be aiming for 
um, blood pressures less than 140 over 90 in adults for a long time. It's taken longer to get this information in pregnant women because of the concerns around, you know, drug complications and things. Great. Thanks, John. That's really, really helpful. Can I go again? I've got another one. No. It's also about hypertension. <laughs> no. Sorry. I think we're just going to end it. There. <laughs> Nobody wants to hear about hypertension. I think you're going to, I think the listeners are going to want to hear this one because if you, I think so too. If you are a junior doctor out there, potentially an FY1 that's holding an on-call bleep, and in particular a ward cover bleep, I think you are going to want to hear this. So, I'm going to share first a brief case, which I am sure is going to be familiar to our listeners. It may not be familiar to my two co-hosts tonight because it's probably been a while since they've taken a phone call like this, but I suspect they've had juniors asking them what to do about inpatient hypertension. So you get a bleep from the ward. Mr. Smith has just had his blood pressure done on the kind of evening obs round. And the nurses are worried because his blood pressure is 194 over 105. Bloody hell, that's high. Mr. Smith is recovering from a community-acquired pneumonia and is almost ready for discharge, actually. He's got a history of hypertension and he's on regular amlodipine and ramipril, five and a five. The question is, what do you do? I think as I've got older, I've become more and more relaxed about these sort of situations. Um, but it's so common. I've had so many calls about it and I've, especially perhaps in younger years, would fret and fret and fret and um, about like what we should be giving them. Um I don't actually know if there's any particular guidance. There probably are sort of hospital guidance out there. And I would yeah, start by, I would probably be aiming for a blood pressure of less than 180. And I'd probably give him another dose of amlodipine. That's probably what I would do. Well, you'd be wrong, Barney. <laughs> <laughs> no, not necessarily, not necessarily. Um, so, so firstly, you're absolutely right. It's common. And I'm, I'm, I'm glad you said it's common because this paper that I'm going to present is one of the main things it's trying to do is trying to tell us just how common it is and try and basically say, this is this is a big problem and we don't really know what to do. Um, so let me go through in a bit more detail. Um, there aren't really many uh, guidelines, well, there aren't any real guidelines on this, but this paper by Garzi et al. Um, is very helpful. It's published in the Journal of Clinical Hypertension. And so the way they did this, it's, it's, all, it's a retrospective cohort study. They used a big electronic health record across five hospitals in Connecticut in America, um, and they used that to investigate the prevalence of inpatient hypertension and what treatments these patients were getting. I'm hoping you're going to say that if you just leave it and you find something else to do and you come back a little bit later, the blood pressure goes down and sorts itself out. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> I mean, actually, sort of. So they had roughly 200,000 patients um, sort of screened in this big electronic health record. Um, and essentially 10% of those inpatients developed severe hypertension at some point during their inpatient stay. So they excluded patients that had uh, blood pressure measurements that were done in ED, um, they excluded patients that had been on iatropes, they excluded patients on ITU. There's a, there's a raft of exclusions that make this a relatively sensible cohort of patients that are sort of admitted on inpatient wards. And they define severe hypertension by systolic blood pressure of greater than 180 and a diastolic blood pressure greater than 110, and that is without signs of end organ damage. Um, and that's, that's really important because just as a reminder to listeners, if there are signs of end organ damage, then that becomes hypertensive emergency. And that is a slightly different kettle of fish that does require, you know, serious, um, attention and, and treatment. So, um, of the 10% of the 200,000 that developed severe hypertension, 40% of those in this cohort received some form of antihypertensive treatment. So this gives them two groups, uh, those that got antihypertensive treatment and those that didn't get treatment for this sort of single blood pressure episode. And then the author said, okay, well then what happened to blood pressure in the following six hours after this initial high reading? Like I said, this gives them two groups, uh, one that got treatment, one that didn't get treatment. 
And then they looked to see what happened in the six hours following the blood pressure recording. And I think my main take home from this is there's a lot of content in this paper and the supplement is massive. My main take home point is that the blood pressure went down within six hours, regardless of if the patient received blood pressure treatment or not, and went down by a similar amount. So within the six hours, the treatment arm went down by about 30 systolic, uh, sorry, the MAP went down by about 30 and the, that happened in the treatment arm and then not in the treatment arm as well. Uh, this applies to both systolic blood pressure and the mean arterial pressure. And so just, I'm going to rephrase that slightly. Even when you don't give patients treatment, their blood pressure tends to drop within six hours. And if you look at treatment guidelines for severe hypertension without end organ damage, really they recommend that the MAP should be dropped by about 10 to 20% in the first hour, and then a further five to 15 in the next 23 hours. So really we want to be gentle with the blood pressure. What I'm trying to emphasize here is that bringing the blood pressure down rapidly is actually associated with well-documented harms such as strokes, heart attacks, and things like that. So giving antihypertensive treatment is not benign. That's interesting. Thanks, John. And um, I, I don't think you mentioned, but did you did you say? I mean, were there any out, you know, any adverse outcomes from having a high blood pressure, which were mentioned? Nobody went on to have a brain hemorrhage or a stroke or anything like that. Yeah. So uh, I think this is a big, a, a big sort of limitation of the study. It's kind of all about sur surrogate markers. There's not really a lot about kind of clinical outcomes. It's sort of just asking okay. like the main point of the study is sort of asking what is happening to the blood pressure. They interestingly, they, so they use this metric of the main primary outcome was the 30% drop in mean arterial pressure within six hours. And what they, what they, the reason why they took that is because they think that if you drop the mean arterial pressure by greater than 30 within the first six hours, you're causing harm. And that is associated with, with harm. And weirdly, they showed that if you got treatment, your mean arterial pressure dropped less and slower than if you didn't get treatment, <laughs> which is strange. And they explain it in the paper and they think it's got something to do with treatments like affecting your baroreceptor reflex and making the drop in blood pressure a bit more gentle. I, I'm not really sure. It's a bit of a kind of weird sort of finding of the paper. I think I think I wouldn't get too bogged down in that. My main take home is that basically both groups, their blood pressure dropped regardless of if you gave them treatment. So it doesn't really matter what you do. And on the whole, you can probably get away with not giving people treatment. So is that what we're saying? We're saying that um, generally speaking, so you come and see the same patient, you wouldn't give them any, you wouldn't treat that well, severe um, hypertension. <laughs> I think what I'm saying is you can be a bit more chilled about the whole thing and you don't have to jump in and give everyone nifedipine straight away or ramipril or whatever your sort of, um, you know, antihypertensive choices. And you definitely should leave intravenous medications in the cupboard. So the study was done in the US and worryingly about 20% of the patients who had severe hypertension received treatment with IV medication, which is quite a lot and probably not something we see as much in the UK, you know. I mean, you'd be bold to start someone on a libitalol infusion if they were just sort of sat there with systolic of 190. Um, I, I guess my take home is probably just like, this shows that you don't really have to treat severe inpatient hypertension, but I would sort of caveat that with, it really should be tailored to the patient. And if there are clinical reasons why you don't want the blood pressure to be over 190, then maybe they should have treatment. But certainly you want to be repeating the blood pressure and making sure that it does drop you know, within the subsequent four hours or six hours. Yeah, I'm sort of fudging the answer a little bit, but basically you can relax a bit, have a sort of patient-centered approach and recheck the blood pressure and make sure it's dropping. That's awesome. Thanks. That's yeah, nice and reassuring, actually. So, John, uh, I've got a question. Was this just a one-off high blood pressure or they look at like whether it was sustained over a certain period before they did or didn't treat them? 
Yeah, so it's a it's a one-off high blood pressure. So it's the first it's the first measurement while they're an inpatient of severe hypertension. And then the question they asked is what then happens in the next six hours to the blood pressure? Yep, great. So yeah, I think that fits in nicely with um often uh, the problems you face, just that, you know, random one-off high blood pressure, what's to do with it? So it sounds like initially we can just chill out for a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> but I think patient-centered approach would be the uh, <laughs> the better way. Patient-centered approach, but you know, it's it's probably you don't necessarily need to rush in with antihypertensives. Jumping on the hypertension bandwagon just for a bit, guys. Did you see that? Um, that there was an article recently as well about renal denervation to treat refractory hypertension. Is this one of your funny anecdotes, Varney? It sounds. It does. It sounds like an awful, awful joke, doesn't it? it sounds like it touched, <laughs> touched a touched a nerve Alvin anyway um I thought it was probably a bit niche to cover fully in the podcast but essentially what they're looking at is using radio frequency ablation where they really they ablate the renal artery and vessels which um performs renal denervation so you know gets rid of the nerves and actually it was interesting it led to a 10, 10 millimeter hg reduction in 24 hour blood pressure as far out as 24 months sounds a bit risky though invasive yeah yeah, you think so. It does. I mean, it sounds, you know, compared to what we're used to doing, you know, giving a pill. But actually, there were no differences in adverse events in the 40 treated compared to the 40 in the sham treatment group. And there was no difference in sort of ultimately in renal, in renal function over that period of time. But what I suppose I found was interesting is perhaps the lack of improvement in adverse events could be pretty important here as maybe improving the blood pressure didn't actually affect these patients' overall morbidity and mortality. I'm not sure. But Still an interesting finding. So, John, perhaps this is what we should be doing for our inpatient hypertensives and those <laughs> pregnant ladies. Perfect. Yeah, that would, that would make the F1 on call slightly trickier. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe we will save that for another time. Let's let's move away from hypertension to something cardiovascular related. I think, Alvin, you've got something along those lines as well, haven't you? Yeah, I was going to see what segue you're going to use. Um, not bad, not bad. All right, so I've got uh, the next article I've got is the safety of seizing aspirin used without a clinical indication after age 70, a subgroup analysis of the Asprey RCT. So this uh, Asprey RCT uh, was a trial that was published back in 2018 where it's shown that in older adults who are given aspirin for primary prevention had actually higher mortality than those who received placebo. And so uh, this was a subgroup analysis taken from that trial. And what they did was um, they took all the participants that were already taking aspirin at the time of enrolment. Then they divided those into um, a group that was randomly assigned to placebo, which formed the aspirin cessation group and compared them to uh, those that were assigned aspirin, which formed the continuation group. Um, So quite clever, really. Overall, uh, they found that the aspirin cessation group had higher rates of the primary outcome, which was a composite of mortality, incident dementia, or physical disability, but this was not statistically significant. Similarly, there was also no significant difference in the secondary outcomes of cardiovascular events or bleeding. The main weakness of the study that I could see was that as it was a post hoc subgroup analysis, it was underpowered and they sort of only had about 850 participants in both groups. But uh, despite this, I think it still gives reassurance to most physicians who are likely to be, I think, inclined to already stop aspirin when 
we see that you know there's no good indication yeah thanks alvin i think i think the antiplatelet story is really interesting isn't it and how we're kind of gradually giving them for a shorter period of time and to less people and I think this is actually this is really important. Um, and the the U.S. Preventative Services Task Force, the UPSTF, I think, um, have actually updated their recommendation on the use of aspirin for primary pre- prevention based on this 2018 trial. So, uh, yeah, gone are the days of people taking these harmless baby aspirins to protect themselves because actually in a lot of people they do cause more harm. So um, this uh, this report, which has just come out. Yeah, and this is a US-based report, but it says that if you're 40 to 59 years old with a 10-year cardiovascular risk of more than 10%, the overall net benefit of protection with aspirin is there, but it's very small. Um, so decisions should be taken on an individual basis. And if the bleeding risk is very small, then yeah, maybe the benefit will be yeah, outweigh the risks. However, they also conclude with moderate certainty that initiating aspirin in those over 60 years old for primary prevention has no net benefit and therefore should be avoided. Mm -hmm. Obviously, we don't, um, well, none of us work in the community, but I feel like in hospital, I see less and less primary prevention aspirin being prescribed. I don't, I see it less unnecessarily prescribed on a drug chart. Um, I wonder, do, do do the US Preventive Services Task Force say anything about um, the uh, the alternative benefits to aspirin that people talk about, I don't know, reducing GI cancers and and the lot. They did actually, yeah, they did incorporate that into this. So the you know the whole net benefit they they thought about that as well, and the slight risk of colorectal cancers and things. And yep, it was involved in their conclusions. So the days of aspirin in primary prevention are dwindling, if not gone, but not in secondary prevention. <laughs> not in secondary prevention. We're still <laughs> using it. It's still important. <laughs> Although for less time, you know, but it is interesting. Brilliant, Barney. On to something a little more melodic, I believe. Yeah. So let's go away from these sort of the bleeding and the, and the and the hearts and all this sort of thing. Um, and I just found this a really interesting. Thought this was a really interesting article. It's a a meta analysis published in JAMA Open, and it's the Association of Music Interventions with Health Related Quality of Life. So look, the authors scoured the journals to find any controlled trial that is not observational or cross-sectional, which looked at either music making or listening as the intervention. The trials had to provide enough data to complete validated health-related quality of life questionnaires looking at mental and physical health. They found 26 studies, which, as you can probably imagine, were quite heterogeneous, um, and just under half involved listening, and the rest were being actively involved in making music somehow. Overall, the evidence quality was moderate to high in 60% of the studies. So not bad. These studies often, you know, are full down perhaps in their, in their quality, but this is not bad. Without delving too much into detail and the stats, music interventions were associated with an, a significant improvement in mental health quality of life. A mean improvement in this, in this mental health score of three, which meets the minimum clinical important difference. The improvement in physical health-related quality of life was also significantly improved, but this had a lower improvement of a score of one. Okay, so overall there is a uh, benefit, it looks like, from music interventions. Obviously not you performing any music interventions, Barney, but what sort of ailments were they actually looking at? Well, from the physical side, the mental health, there was a whole load. From the physical side, um, there were a few on obesity and some on things like osteoarthritis pain, strength training. There's a few, quite varied really. 
Um, and interestingly, improvements in mental health and physical health were actually the same in the obesity trials, where they were trying to improve obesity, whilst in the others, the quality of life improvement in mental health was much higher than physical health, which goes with what the scores showed. Okay, Barney, so the question is, how is this practice changing? How are you going to shoehorn music therapy into your respiratory clinic? On a day-to-day basis. It's an excellent question. And and well, there is there is some evidence that singing is beneficial in respiratory diseases such as COPD for things like dyspnea. But this meta-analysis picks up on a fairly clear theme that music therapy can be great for your mental health. So basically, I think this can be added to a growing number of possible lifestyle interventions, which can be re- recommended to patients or even to yourselves. You know, things like exercise, walks in nature, socializing, singing, all of which have actual evidence that they can improve your quality of life. As for me, as you can guess, I'm going to continue singing terribly and loudly, both at home and at work. And if anybody complains, I can tell them they are welcome for my free dose of lovely medicine. (laughs) (laughs) Lucky them and lucky listeners. Um, Very lucky to have your dulcet tones on the podcast. Absolutely. Now we're going to mute your microphone for a short period of time and listen to Alvin again. So, yeah, next, uh, well, in fact, continuing the theme of trying to improve one's quality of life, um, I've got a couple of papers on uh, how exercise might benefit us. So first up, I've got association of Tai Chi with physical and neurocognitive functions from the Singapore Longitudinal Aging Study, which was published in Age and Aging in April. So Tai Chi is a form of Chinese martial arts involving slow and low impact movements, which require balance and mental concentration. Historically, it's been widely associated with positive health benefits, including improving strength, balance and quality of life. This study was an observational study from Singapore where 572 participants who perform Tai Chi regularly, so once a week or more, were compared to 5,400 non-performers with a mean age of 66. Now, even at baseline measurements, they found that those who were participating in Tai Chi had a 30% lower prevalence of impaired physical quality of life. In the follow-up longitudinal analysis, the researchers found that in those that were robust at baseline, Tai Chi was associated with a 59% reduction in incidence of frailty and 33% lower incidence of impairment of mental health quality of life, but there was no difference to mortality. Basically, in summary, Tai Chi was associated with less new incident frailty and potentially better mental health as well. Do you think, Alvin, do you think there's something specific about Tai Chi? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, So there's always been associations, you know, or thoughts that Tai Chi is beneficial for these things. And as I go and describe in my next paper, it could just be the fact that, you know, it's a form of ex- like regular exercise and that, that could be the benefit that we're seeing. But certainly I think if you were, um, you know, particularly when I'm recommending things for my patients, I probably will mention specifically that, you know, Tai Chi has been found to be particularly helpful and uh, in some of the sort of um, guidance that you see, nice guidance and uh, evidence base that they use, they do specifically mention um, that Tai Chi, for example, you know, helps reduce falls, for example. I think it's a combination of, um, yeah, this, again, the strength, 
breathing, slow movement, balance. It's a combination of things, isn't it? Rather than just say muscle training or exercise. So I think that's why it's um it's often beneficial, which is like, yeah, I think it's really interesting. I've never actually done it, but um, I have actually recommended it to patients before. We, um, uh, I remember in my fifth year of medical school, we got, we were doing geriatrics and somebody came in and actually taught us a Tai Chi session that they deliver to um, the elderly to try and improve their falls. Mm. And she asked for a volunteer to come up on stage to demonstrate her Tai Chi skills. And I don't know if my memory is hazy, but I basically went up as the volunteer. She basically pushed me over to, to, dem- <laughs> to demonstrate how poor my like center of balance was and how I needed Tai Chi. <laughs> Drunk at the time. So there I was sort of being pushed over by like a 75-year-old lady in front of my entire medical school cohort. <laughs> I mean, that's great. I wish I was there. I'd erase that from my memory, actually. I've thought about that for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> trauma there we go go on Alvin, tell us about your second paper right, more more on the theme of exercise and health outcomes so next i've got a systematic review and meta-analysis of muscle strengthening activities and mortality published in the british journal of sports medicine by homer et al they found 16 studies which reported uh, outcomes including all-cause mortality incident cardiovascular disease cancers and diabetes in relation to muscle strengthening they found that muscle strengthening was associated with a reduction in all-cause mortality by 15%, cardiovascular disease by 17%, all cancers by 12%, and incident diabetes by 17%. Now, what's cool about this study is um, they also managed to calculate dose-response effects of muscle strengthening uh, through sort of 10-minute-per-week increments. And what they found was the greatest benefit on mortality was at 40 minutes of exercise per week, which gave you a reduction of 17% on mortality. And uh, this relative risk remained below one, so it was protective, um, up till 140 minutes per week of exercise. And above that, the sort of confidence interval gets very large and you you know can't work out uh, which direction it's going. And similarly, Um, The greatest benefit in reduction in incident diabetes and cardiovascular disease was with 60 minutes per week of exercise. So all in all, the authors conclude that given the greatest benefit was seen between sort of 30 to 60 minutes of exercise per week, um, that recommendations of exercise to patients for two days a week might well be pretty reasonable and justified. And this is specifically muscle training exercise rather than say cardiovascular fitness is that right that's right yeah yeah wow that's very good it sort of goes against i mean you do tend to say isn't it 30 minutes of exercise five times a week isn't that the current sort of that, that's cardiovascular that's, yeah, that's yeah. um yeah, that's making you breathe hard and this is actually the muscle training which is a separate thing and it's interesting yeah. and because not because of this study but recently i realized i do plenty of cardiovascular stuff i've started climbing to try and you know do something a bit more interesting which is actually strength training as well because i don't want to go to the gym and lift weights is this podcast just turning into interventions barney is doing to himself <laughs> uh, and actually i find that i'm singing more uh... <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not using IV medication when my blood pressure goes up. Uh, <laughs> Great. Uh, but I think that they're really interesting, actually, really interesting articles. And, and these are things which we can recommend to our patients. We can, you know, Tai Chi, you can recommend that actually sort of. And what is nice about that, a bit like cardiovascular fitness, actually, what's nice about this one is just a 
60 minutes of a bit of muscle training a week is not impossible. People can do that. And it looks like it's got some really big benefits, which is great. Lovely guys. Well, listeners, we haven't done this for a little while, but I've got a little treat for you. Um, I found one of our relatively irrelevant, irrelevantly relevant articles for you guys. So I had a nose on this case study from probably a very high impact Dutch journal. Um, it's or something like that. Imagine an elderly, that's, that was the name of the journal, by the way. <laughs> that wasn't clear. <laughs> I didn't just have a, a mild stroke. Okay, imagine an elderly lady comes into ED. She's got a fever and a heart rate of 170 with a left bundle branch block. Oh, you're staring at the ECG. You think, you think it's an SVT with aberrant conduction, but damn, it could be a VT. Your head whirls with options. What did those wafflers tell you on journal spotting? Was it metoprolol, diltiazam, fluid, adenosine, amiodarone, DC version? What? <laughs> Maybe we were just recommending that you do a bit of Tai Chi. Anyway, whilst your head is whirlwind with these all ideas, a nurse calmly approaches the patient armed with an enormous nasal swab to screen for COVID, muttering something like, hmm, now seems like a good time. Uh, presumably that's in Dutch, Barney. And by the way, uh, the name of the journal, I've just looked it up. It's just the Dutch Journal of Medicine. I mean, I know, <laughs> thank you for learning how to butcher the pronunciation. It's apparently one of the go. oldest medical journals in the world. No, really? Oh, okay. It yeah. has quite good impact in, in Yeah, well, in right, rightly, in so. rightly so. Um, so there's, a big, there's a big Dutch nurse arriving with a nasal swab and there's someone in Fast AF. I was painting a beautiful story. There we go. And he says something like, Nulicht me in good moment. Yes, that means now seems like a good time. Anyway, you roll your eyes. Doesn't he realise there are more urgent things than a nasal swab right now? The swab goes in. The patient's eyes water. She winces. Cardioversion occurs. Rate drops to 116 beats per minute. Sinus rhythm. All caught on glorious technicolour paper telemetry. So apparently... Stimulation of the glossopharyngeal nerve here led to increased parasympathetic activity, so they think, cardioverting the atrioventricular reentry tachycardia, or AVRT. Classic. That is good. Uh, sorry, I said AF earlier, but you, you did specifically say it was an SVT, didn't you? Um, I, did, I did, very specific. <laughs> so I saw you were going to talk about this, and it reminds me a little bit of uh, a case report that does the rounds every now and again. Some people might have heard of it. It dates back to 2010. Um, there's a case report of a 29-year-old um, who's got new onset fast AF. He's got no risk factors. He's previously totally fit and well. It's just like walking to the shops, notice some palpitations. Within three hours, he's in A&E in AF. Now, to cut a long story short, the clinician looking after the patient performed a digital rectal examination that immediately cardioverted the patient back into sinus rhythm. And nice. the authors actually postulate that DRE increased the vagal tone and this led to the cardioversion. Oh, that's pretty cool and perhaps very useful. Um, just um, why did they PR him then? What, if he was totally fit well? I know, bizarre. So the, the authors written up that they PR'd him because they were about to start a heparin infusion. Um, so they wanted to make uh -huh. sure that the completely well and healthy young man <laughs> Didn't, didn't have a, a PR bleed, which... Um, An occult you know, PR bleed. Yeah, you've always got to Good. ask. You you can't rely on asking people if they're bleeding out of their bum. You've always got to make sure you check yourself. Um, the <laughs> author no, who... Sorry, I was going to say, <laughs> be careful now. You're going to excite a lot of geriatricians with this. 
you know, yet another <laughs> yeah, indication for a PR. Mm. Yeah. Absolutely. The author, very strangely, didn't then conduct a randomized control trial of PR versus sham procedure for cardioversion of AF. And that's why it's not on the ALS algorithm, everybody. Um, but the author does actually boldly suggest in the paper that a PR exam in selected individuals can be considered for cardioversion for AF. And I will leave listeners to decide what, what I think of that conclusion. <laughs> hmm. Is what I think. Mm, indeed. Uh, and on that lovely note, I think um, that's all the articles we've got this episode. So um, as always, uh, I mean, it's been a jam-packed episode of lots of clinical pearls, quite a few Jerry stuff in there. Um, what are everyone's sort of take-home messages from the evening? Um, Alvin, if you had to pick one thing that you've learned tonight, you're going to maybe change your practice, what would it be? I've learned about having a patient-centered approach to uh, high blood pressure on the medical wards, one of high blood pressure, you know, you can tailor your treatment. You don't need to rush in necessarily. Um, so thank you for that. Brackets. You can just ignore it and repeat the blood pressure in six, six hours. Patient-centered. Yeah. <laughs> patient-centered approach. Uh, Barney, what was your take home from the evening? I thought your hypertension were, were very useful. Thank you. I suppose what I, f- I found the the whole aspirin story really interesting, but it's not going to change my practice, I suppose, because I'm unlikely to prescribe aspirin in primary prevention. I generally think I'm more likely to be telling people to do things like Tai Chi and muscle strengthening. And I just love it when there is good evidence behind these sorts of things. So patients often kind of roll their eyes when you suggest these sorts of things, but actually say, look, this is evidence-based. This has had the same evidence that medication has had, and this works, and it will do you good. So go out there, sing, muscle train, and maybe do some Tai Chi. <laughs> Great advice. Uh, I think my take-home is it's actually, so I, I, it's not something that I'm potentially going to do much of, but I think... An increase. PR in twenty-nine-year-olds. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think the uh, randomised controlled trial of um, ultrasound-guided local anaesthetic and steroid injection for osteoarthritis is probably going to be quite a big deal in the future. I think maybe that'll become, you know, uh, a more common approach to management of OA. I think if it isn't already, I'm not a GP. I've got no idea, but. <laughs> If it isn't already, if it isn't already something that happens a lot, then I imagine it's going to happen more and more. Brilliant! Well done, guys. I think that's awesome selection of papers, loads for our listeners to learn, and uh, good seeing your face again, Alvin. Yeah, see you soon. See you next time. Yeah. Take care, everyone. Bye. Bye for now. You have been listening to Journal Spotting with your hosts, Dr. Barnaby Hirons, Dr. Jonathan Hudson, and Dr. Alvin Schrester. Information and links from the show can be found on our website, journalspotting.com, on Twitter at journalspotting, Facebook or Instagram. Special thanks goes to St. George's Healthcare HEE for their generous grant. If you've liked today's podcast, subscribe and leave a review. If you have any feedback or questions, get in touch via our webpage, our email, journalspotting at gmail.com or tweet us. Disclaimer time. This podcast is for educational use only. The views expressed are opinions based on our experience, experience of our guests and the evidence we read. We are not affiliated to any particular institution. By listening to this podcast, you agree not to use the information we share to make decisions on how to treat your patients or yourselves.